Welcome to the weekly podcast from Harvest Ridge Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio. Our heart's desire is that you would grow in your love and devotion to Jesus Christ and that these messages will strengthen your daily walk. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at www.harvestridge.net. Good morning, everyone. Hope y'all are ready to go. Uh, if you got a Bible, open with me to Acts chapter 27. We're going to be walking through Acts 27 in the next couple of moments. Um, we're in retro sermon series, and um, I just thought I'd start as normal. I read this quote on the internet the other day. It said that you cannot be sure that things on the internet are ever 100% genuine. That was by Abraham Lincoln. Speaking of great quotes, this was, this was awesome. You ready? Give me ambiguity or give me whatever. <laughs> I love that one. All right. So my jokes didn't go, but that's all right. We're in retro. This is the last sermon in the sermon series of retro, okay? This is actually the sermon that started the process. I'm sorry. There is no way I can do this sermon in a gentle, light, easy way. If you see frustration coming, it is not frustration with you. It is frustration with me because I don't feel I'm adequately doing a job communicating what I think God has for me to share. I say that up front because if you've ever tried to explain hard things to anybody, you understand the frustration is with the communicator often that I can't get, find a way to get through. So I'm not mad at anybody. I'm not frustrated with anybody except me. And I'm frustrated with this message because I've got something to say and I want you to hear what I've got to say, not what you preconceive that I'm going to say. Is that, am I being very clear? I got something I wanna to say to you, but I need you to hear what I'm saying, not what you walked in thinking. All right, so that being said, Lewis and Clark, they started to cross. They started from St. Louis. They were going all the way to the West Coast. And when they came to the Rocky Mountains, they needed a way through. So they found a pass and they reported on that pass and they went back and they told people about it. Later on, when people started traveling to the West Coast, they followed the same path made by Lewis and Clark through the Rocky Mountains. Later on, that developed into a road. Later on, that developed into a railroad. The railroads ran through that same pass. Later on, they put a super highway through that same pass. So what we know is this, is that if you embrace the old paths, you can learn and you don't have to rediscover the hard mistakes others have made before you. And that's what we're trying to do with the book of Daniel. You know, we've been talking about raising up a Daniel generation. There was a group of people, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were taken into captivity and they had a really, really rough life. Yet when Daniel was 70 years old and the temple had been destroyed for nearly 60 years, he writes, at the time of the evening sacrifice, I was in prayer. He was still remembering the sacrifices that were made and he was still honoring the traditions that God had given him, that God had given him, even though he was 60 years without a temple or a location to practice it. I want us to be a church, to be a group of people that are so committed to Christ that we follow Jesus, even if everything in society and culture crashes around us. You see, the early church started with 120 people in the upper room, and within 300 years, they had turned the world upside down, and the gospel had taken over against the most powerful empire and thoughts in the world, and the gospel was promoted to a place of prominence. After 300 years, 120 people conquered the world for Jesus. So, and, and please take me, that's, that conquered the world is not about money or power. It's about the ideas of Christianity. We're allowed freedom everywhere. So in this series, we'll be looking at five character traits of what it means to be that kind of follower of Jesus. We talked about them. We went along. We talked about devotion, loyalty, you know, uh, integrity, things like that. Today, we're going to talk about toughness. So when I come to toughness, I am reminded that we are not so tough in this culture anymore. Uh, come on, when I was a kid growing up, I used to go visit my uncle. And I don't know if you've ever used an outhouse before. 
but it's quite an experience. Now we all have indoor plumbing, now we have water, we have indoor plumbing, the sewer carries it away and somebody else deals with our crap because we don't even deal with our own anymore, right? But I want you to picture it's 106 degrees in the shade in Oklahoma and you're going to a hole dug in the ground with a little hole in a wooden covering and you gotta go to the bathroom and it's 106. Do you know what an outhouse smells like at 106 outside? All right, <laughs> like an out of, or, or what's even worse is in, in the winter when it's like 18 degrees and the wind is blowing up through that same hole. Yeah, we have lost some time. Can we admit that maybe things have changed? HVAC has changed the world. Could you imagine living in this culture, what, 200 years ago, this part of the nor northern United States 200 years ago, and, and you didn't have a heater that you could go over and punch a button up and the whole house got warm? Mmm. Could you imagine what it's like to be hungry? You know, both of my grandparents were sharecroppers and there were literally months that they would plan on doing, existing on little to no food because the crops weren't in and the money wasn't there. Now, I say this and some of what you're hearing is is that you're bad because you live with these blessings. Now, I'm not saying that. I want, to, I want to talk specifically to the next generation for a second. I want you to hear me, next generation. What I'm going to say is not to belittle you, but it's to encourage you, okay? You don't need to be outhouse tough. You need a different level of tough. Are you following me? You don't need outhouse tough. You need a different level of tough that you can stand up against the craziness of this world that's going around you. You need TikTok tough. No, I'm not kidding. If you're getting your theology from TikTok, just understand people used to write books this thick to explain the issues that people are explaining in TikTok on 60 seconds. Either everybody else used to be really, really dumb or they got ever really, really smart or, or maybe this, maybe the people now are really, really dumb because they're not embracing all the sides of the argument. Are, are you are you all awake here so because what I'm talking to you about is we need to toughen up in that we need to realize that not every problem in the world can be explained in 60 seconds or less there are some things that require nuanced debates over time and I want to help the next generation to become emotionally tough because I think you need emotional toughness more than you need physical toughness and I want to say something to the next generation. If you're 30 or below, I want to make a really very clear comment to you. And this clear comment I want to make is this. I respect you enough. I respect you enough that I expect something from you. I respect you enough that I expect maturity from you that I expect thinking from you, that I expect you to be emotionally and spiritually tough in a world that's trying to kill you. I expect you to think. I was watching a TikToker the other day and he started by talking about, he was gonna explain some very sensitive political issues. He was gonna explain them to me. And in the first couple of minutes, it, it was an it was influencer, he was an influencer. In the first couple of minutes of his presentation, he got four facts wrong, four facts wrong regarding history. Now listen to me for just a second. Listen to me. If you can't figure out when the Constitution was written, first of all, maybe you don't know enough about it to tell everybody what to think about it. I'm not, saying you, I'm not saying you don't have a voice. I'm just saying that you ought, to, you ought to actually read the document before you start telling me that it says it promotes separation of church and state because it doesn't say it. Are, are y'all following me? So what I wanna say is we need a new level of toughness where we actually embrace the fact that we don't know everything and we need some help learning it. That's for the younger generation. I respect you enough to say, I wanna hear your voice. But make sure if you're going to say something to me, you've actually thought about it, not just regurgitating somebody else's garbage. 
Did, did, did I say, was that respectful enough? Because I really am trying to be respectful in the next generation. I love when the next generation speaks. I love it when you stand up. I love it when your voice is heard. Let's just make sure your voice isn't a voice that, we, that anybody that knows facts are going, oh my goodness. Have some integrity in what you say. So that, that requires toughness to do the research because you gotta actually think. You have to listen to voices that oppose you. Can we talk about this for a second? Yep. If, if we wanna establish a next generation that grows up to be tough, then, then we have to do away with participation trophies. Now, now listen, I was supposed to participate in the get rugged tough mutter here. I was in training, right? We went out for a couple runs, right, Mike? Went out for a couple runs. I'm in training for the tough mutter. But the problem happened, COVID happened, and I wasn't able to do Tough Mudder, so it got canceled. But you know what I got in the mail anyway? Because I paid the price. I got my, I got my certification, my, my medal that I completed it. By the way, do you think I wear this thing with pride? Why don't I wear it with pride? Because I paid for it. I didn't earn it. Respect needs to be earned. It's okay to realize that respect needs to be earned. You need to toughen up a little bit. Let's toughen up as a culture. And can we quit telling everybody they're perfect just the way they are? No, you aren't. You know it. Come on, becoming the better you. Go into training, become the you God made you to be. Now, the AA Big Book, I read this, because what we've done in our culture, what we've done is we've made um, momentary pleasures the ultimate of life that is that is how sexual identity has become the most important discussion in our culture is because it's all about that 30 seconds of pleasure in our world and and we've made we've elevated that to the highest we've elevated pot smoking now where you can just smoke pot and you don't have to deal with life we've elevated that we've elevated drinking we've elevated these moments of pleasure so much so that we've elevated the pleasure so much so that we're not tough regarding the living of life. And we're, we're failing in relationships and marriages and we're failing in, in uh, accomplishing things because we're expecting a moment of pleasure to be the ultimate high in life. And I read this quote the other day from the Alcoholics Anonymous big book. And this is really good and it really spoke to me. So I'm not yelling at you, it spoke to me. You got this? It says this, because of our escapes into these momentary pleasures, our growing up was delayed. And there's some 50 year olds in this room, your growing up is delayed. We didn't learn how to deal with our pain because we escaped into an anesthetic, into a high or a relief. No longer will we filter out suffering because that too is a part of being aware and alive. Suffering is a wonderful part of life because that's how you grow. So that being said, we're gonna talk about toughness today. At the onslaught of our, our Christian faith by this culture, we're all gonna to have to either toughen up at some point or we're gonna get run over by culture. And the definition of toughness is a state of being strong enough to withstand adverse conditions and rough handling. Did you get that? This is a definition off of Google. The ability to handle rough handling, strong enough to withstand it, and the ability to deal with hardship or cope with difficult situations. How did this happen? Just real quickly, I'm gonna come back to this in the end, but early Christians were able to cope with any tough situation because they believed for a fact that Jesus died in the grave, was, uh, died on the cross, was buried in a grave, and on the third day was resurrected from the dead. And they believed because Jesus promised them he was the victor and demonstrated for them he was the victor over death and over all the pain and struggles and issues of this life. Because he demonstrated it, they thought that nothing could keep them from succeeding because if they lived, they lived for Jesus. If they suffered, Jesus was glorifying them. And if they died, then they got elevated to heaven. You cannot beat an opponent that cannot lose. So today I wanna to look at a story from the Apostle Paul's life about how he won through toughness. 
And the first one is, Paul started as a nobody. Paul started as nobody. So remember at this time, this is Paul's last journey on his life. By now he's already planted multiple churches. By now he's already written most of the books he's going to write in the Bible. By now, the apostle Paul has already spoken before kings multiple times. Paul is an important guy, but he's reduced at the end of his life back to being a nobody. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You've had jobs and you've had really, really good jobs and you got paid really, really well. And then you got let go because of downsizing or whatever. And now you find yourself in a position where you're a nobody again. Just understand that Paul experienced that as well. And this story is for you as well as for the person that feels like you're a nobody and nobody ever listens to you. So Acts chapter 17, verse 1. When it was decided that we would sell for Italy, Paul and some of the other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. So we boarded the ship. So it starts this way. Paul is simply just another one of the prisoners. And when uh, they got on the boat and some things developed, and Paul said in chapter 27, verse 9, Paul warned them. He said, men, I see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring about loss of ship and cargo and to your own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to Paul, so this guy that's spoken to kings gets totally ignored by a guy that's commander over 100 people. He didn't listen to Paul, but he followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Seemed to make sense, right? They were at least the people that were responsible for the ship. Who's gonna listen to a prisoner? And if you ever feel like your voice isn't heard, that you're a nobody, that nobody's listening to you, don't develop an attitude, just be faithful. I know that's hard to say, but just because your voice isn't being heard doesn't mean it's not important. It just may mean it's not your time yet. And if your voice isn't heard, earn it. Earn it. If you're on your job, and let's say you are that person, you've done this job for 40 years, and now you've got a whole bunch of new people come in, and they've got a new way of doing it, and you're looking at it knowing it's not going to work. Don't get an attitude. Just wait until everything breaks and show them how to fix it. They'll give you a raise. Right? Earn it. Part of toughness is, is that you don't have to... You don't have to always be first and you don't have to always be important. You may have to earn being heard and being important. So one final thing, if you're at the bottom and nobody's listening to you, listen, if you're at the bottom, the only way you can go is up. I mean, there's nothing that, if you're at the bottom, there's no lower you can go. Don't worry about it. Just be faithful, do the right thing. So what did Paul do? Nobody was listening to him, so he just was faithful. It reminds me, when I started this church, I was 25. Now, um, it's not so much as it is today as it was in the early 90s, but if you're in the 90s and you were a 25-year-old pastor, you got no respect, none, zero, none. All pastors had to be older and have gray hair to be heard. And here I was, I was a 25-year-old trying to start a church, and we had a guy in our church that was about 45, and he and I would go out, we would go door to door in the neighborhood, we'd knock on doors and talk to people about Harvest Ridge and Jesus, and, and we would have these conversations. Not once did a person open the door and look at me. Every one of them always looked at him first. Now, I could have got an attitude about that, and if I would have done that, I would have set the guy that was my strongest supporter at that day. So instead, I let him do all the talking. I let him be the pastor, and I just came alongside, and eventually, we shifted. But it was tough not getting any respect as a 25-year-old church planner. It was tough. But if you hang out long enough, you earn it. All right, second of all, Paul endured a disastrous journey. Let's walk through the journey here a little bit. Chapter 27, verse 14. Before very long, so they get on the ship, they start sailing on the ship. Paul said, don't sail. They said, we're gonna do it anyway. So before very long, a wind of hurricane force. So what hit them? A hurricane. Now this sounds like a great thing to me. Anybody ever been on a boat in the middle of a storm? I could tell stories about this, our little, you know, 18-foot tri-hull bass boat going across Kerr Lake when a storm came up. And it, I don't know if you've ever hit six to seven-foot waves in a tri-hull bass boat, but let me just say, it is quite an experience. Could you imagine being on a ship with a hurricane and all the waves and the wind and everything that goes along with that? Being on a ship, no, we're not talking uh, one of your cruise ships that's 17 stories tall. No, we're talking about a ship made of wood that probably 
probably is 50 feet long, 100 feet long. There was, not an, there was not a full stomach in the entire ship. Let's just put it that way. Every one of them fed the fish. So this wind of hurricane force came and northeastern it swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it. So what do you do when you can't fight? You quit, you give way. They, they went rope-a-dope like Muhammad Ali. They gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So they were hard, trying hard to get the lifeboat back into the boat. So the men hoisted aboard and they passed ropes under the ship to hold the ship together. Now that sounds like the kind of ship I want to be on in the middle of a hurricane, one that's held together by ropes. Sounds fun, right? I, I was on a cruise ship one time and we hit 40 mile an hour headwinds. And I'm going to tell you, me and my wife both, we were like, could you imagine being on a little ship out there in a hurricane with ropes holding it together? And because they were afraid we would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, now that even made it more interesting, didn't it? There are sandbars coming up about eight feet deep, not deep enough to stand up in, but shallow enough to destroy your boat. Oh boy, run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, we lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. Now that sounds like a blast. We took a violent battering. That's a good description, a violent battering. Did you notice these words? These are all words I want to describe my trips. What'd you do on vacation? Oh, we took a violent battering. <laughs> I, I mean, this is starting to sound like a Chevy Chase movie. And, and they took a violent battering from the store and the next day they begin to throw the cargo overboard. So all of the cargo, anything precious, they throw it over. All the things they were paid to deliver, now they're overboard. And then on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle. Now, I was wondering what this meant, so I looked this up. What ship's tackle is, that's all the ropes and all the rigging and all the things that you use to be able to sell a boat. So what did they do when they threw the ship's tackle over? They said, we got to keep this boat shallow. We don't have to sail it, but we got to get it shallow. So they threw even the material used to sail the thing overboard. Doesn't sound very promising, does it? And they threw it over with their own hands when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope. Aren't you glad the story doesn't end there? It was tough, but it doesn't end. Acts 27, 27. On the 14th night, how many days? Come on, how many days? 14 days of this. That's a long time, isn't it? Two weeks. We were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed we were approaching land, fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks. That would have been a better ending, right? Dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. So then what happened? Was they wrecked. Uh, verse 41, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. So they were gonna guide the ship into a sandy harbor but they weren't able to, and the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. Now the soldiers, we'll come back to why this happened, but listen to this, the soldiers planned on killing the prisoners, because they had a bunch of prisoners they were taken to Rome. They were gonna kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion, who didn't listen to Paul in the beginning, the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. So he wanted to spare Paul's life. So he ordered that those could swim, jump overboard first and get to land and the rest were to get there on planks or other pieces of the broken up ship. What a great ending to the story, but it's not the ending. Because if it wasn't bad enough for Paul after 14 days of being out on the open sea, puking your guts up because you're sick, and now running aground, and now shipwrecked, and now riding to land on a plank. Acts 28.3, Paul, of course, goes to work when he gets to ground because that's what tough people do. When tough times hit, they just work a little harder. Somebody could say amen right there. So Paul gets to ground, and, and they're making a fire to keep people warm, and look what happened. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. 
Can anybody admit Paul's having a good day? <laughs> this would be a good day, wouldn't it? Come on, isn't this how you want your trips to go? Well, let me see. We were going to take a cruise, but then we got battered by a hurricane and we ran adrift on the sea for 14 days and didn't eat anything for 14 days. And they held the ship together by tying ropes on it. And then we crashed into some island and it broke up. And when I got to the, the, the edge of uh, uh, a rattlesnake came out and bit me. Great day, great day. But I want you to see something here. God used this adversity to promote Paul. God used the adversity and Paul's toughness to promote him. Remember how nobody listened to Paul at the beginning? Remember how nobody paid him any respect or gave him any respect? Notice what happens. God showed up and elevated Paul. God did it. How did God do it? Well, first of all, remember back in Acts 27, verse 10, he prophesied. The Holy Spirit, listen, if, if you're in this room and, and, and you have not yet experienced the fullness of the Holy Spirit with the Pentecostal infilling, I just want to encourage you that Pentecost is real. It's for today, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today. And they're not so you can appear spiritual at church. They're so you can use the power of the Holy Spirit on your job and with your family and out in the world. And God wants to fill you with the Holy Spirit and power so you can speak words of prophecy like Paul did here that will bring about life to you and will create words of answers for the culture you're dealing with. Acts 27.10, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo into our very lives also. So he, he gave them this prophecy and said, hey guys, it's going to get bad. And because he warned them in advance, they were willing to listen after it happened. Now how did, Paul also had something else that gave him an advantage. It was intimacy with God. His intimacy with God gave him an advantage. When things got tough, Paul pressed into his relationship with God. Listen, when things get tough, you don't need to go on Facebook more, and you don't need to go on Instagram more, and you don't need to talk to your buddies more. You know who you really need to talk to when things get tough? You need to talk to God more. Look what happened, verse 21. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and he said, men, you should have listened to me and taken my advice. I like that. I like that a lot. Anybody that's ever been right in the room appreciates that, right? You should have listened to me, not to sell from Crete. And then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. And last night, here's how he knew. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong. You see, Paul, when the pressure was on, didn't go to what he knew. He knew, went to who he knew. It ain't what you know that's going to get you through stuff. It's who you know. And I belong to God and my life belongs to God. And when trouble comes, I'm going to press in with him and he's going to speak to me what I need to know. And that is where we as Christians have an upper hand on the rest of the world. The God who chose us, we belong to him. And when the pressure's on, we can go to him and we can find strength for every circumstance because we know to whom we belong. He said, the God whom I belong and whom I serve. He not only knew he belonged to, but he knew who he was devoted to in the way he lived and acted. And he said, the God to whom I serve, he stood beside me. Now, everything Paul's going to say and do from then on comes out of this confidence that God is with him and God has spoken to him. There are times in my life I would not have made it if I hadn't known that I was God's and that God had spoken to me. And then what did he do? Paul believed God's promises. He was not only intimate with God. Listen to me. Some of us, I, I got to back up and I got to say some of us, the reason that we struggle so much with our self-worth, the reason we struggle so much with all these fights and struggles in our world and we're always, I, we're always attacking people rather than listening to them and we're always got to be defensive and grumpy and have tones 
I know when I get a tone. Do you know what I'm doing? When I get grumpy and I have a tone, do you know what I'm doing? I haven't been talking to my father. I haven't been intimate to my father, and I haven't heard his words of compassion, strength, and encouragement. And I will say to us that part of the problem in the church today is we haven't been close to God. We haven't developed our intimacy with God, so we're fighting the wrong fights. We're going to the world to fight against them when we need to go to the world and tell them, I have stood with the God to whom I belong and whom I serve and he has told me what to do there is some power there and I think part of the weakness in the church and I think part of the problem with COVID is what COVID is teaching us is one of the things it's teaching us is we have relied too much on the world's weapons and the world's power and we need to get back to a heart that is devoted to God first and then he uh, he, he said he didn't only just hear all of this he believed it Acts 27, 24, the angel said, this is what happened when he got close to God. The angel said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So you guys are my gift. God gave me your lives as a gift for sparing mine. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Nevertheless, he's, oh, and he said, so keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God. Notice he's making a declaration to a bunch of people with no hope whatsoever, and he's telling them, I know you're going to live. You know how I know? Because I have faith that what God said to me is going to happen. Woo. Nevertheless, though, we're going to have to run aground on some island. And Paul did something else. He gave wise advice. Listen, use your past experience and learn a few things. We're going to find out in a couple of minutes that Paul had been in two other shipwrecks, at least, if not three other shipwrecks. We know that Paul had spent a day and a night in the open sea. Paul knew how to survive on an open sea when things had gone bad. So when times got rough, he gave some wise advice. God didn't speak this to him, but he had learned something through his past trials. So he said in verse 31, then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men, you see what we're going to happen is the sailors were going to take the lifeboat, get in the lifeboat and sail to shore. And Paul said to the centurion, he said, unless the sailors stay with us, he said, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So immediately the soldiers cut away the ropes that held the lifeboat. They gave up the lifeboat. The guy they wouldn't listen to, they cut away the lifeboat for him when he tells them to immediately. Your problems are not just an opportunity for you to learn toughness. They're an opportunity for the glory of God to be elevated and for you to find a voice that brings life to those around you. And then the last thing, through spiritual boldness. Actually, there's two, two more, through spiritual boldness. Acts 27, 33, my favorite part of the story, okay? Just before dawn, they're about to crash, about to run ashore. Paul urged them to eat. He said, for the last 14 days, you've been in constant suspense and gone without food and haven't eaten anything. You've thrown it all up. Now I urge you to take some food. You're going to need it to survive. So eat something, everyone. Not one of you will lose a single hair from your head. And then he said, after... After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to his brilliance, right? Now, what did he do? He gave thanks to whom? God. Once again, this situation, the tough situation in your life is not about you becoming awesome. It is about God getting glory through you. He gave thanks to God in front of them all, and he broke the bread, and he gave it to them. And they were all encouraged because one crazy guy... One crazy guy had faith in God. And he ate his food, and he ate some. They ate some themselves. So you remember the snake bite? So now they get to shore, they're all ashore, and the snake comes out and bites them. Look what happened because of that. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice had not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. He went about gathering brushwood and making a fire. And the people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their mind and said, he must be a god. Now this is the dude that nobody listened to and now they're calling him a god. But Paul didn't take that glory. Do you know what Paul did? Look at verse 7. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, 
the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery, but Paul went in to see him and after prayer, so notice Paul stopped and said his prayers. And then, you know what he did? He placed his hands on him and healed him. When this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. And all those soldiers and all those sailors are now running around saying, guys, you gotta come listen to this guy. How does it happen that the toughest situation of his life, Paul turned it into an advancement to the kingdom of God, an advancement that nobody was listening to him. Now the entire island is listening to him talk. How does it happen? Because God used his toughness and his tenacity to remain faithful to God, even when everything was going crazy and used it to elevate him. And this is how the prisoner became the leader of them all. He declared his loyalty and devotion to God and he backed it up with his action. And he showed toughness leading through the difficult circumstances because he was suffering there too. By the way, Paul knew this was what his life was gonna be. In Acts 20, 23, a couple of chapters before, somebody was prophesying that he was gonna be handed over and become a prisoner, and he said, no, I only know, these are his words, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. See, this was nothing new to Paul. He said, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. He said, my life here is not about success or about me being comfortable. It is about me glorifying God with the way I live. And listen to me, if your goal is to make a lot of money or your goal is to live a comfortable, healthy, pleasurable life, you are living far less than what God made you to live for. By the way, Paul, Paul had done this. Now, I believe 2 Corinthians is written before this, this happened to him and before he's on his way here in this story in Acts. And in 2 Corinthians, listen to the things Paul had already gone through. I wasn't gonna share this, but in my devotions this week, this just happened to be the day I was preparing this message and starting this message. This was my devotions in the morning, you ready? Five times I was uh, from the Jews, I received 40 lashes minus one. So he was beat with a whip five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones, by the way, so much that they thought he was dead and they left him there as dead. But he got up and went back into the town and preached to them some more. Toughness. Uh, he says, I, uh, three times I was shipwrecked. So this would have been his fourth shipwreck. I spent a night and day on the open sea with no ship around floating on a plank. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from river, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked, but that's the least of my pain. He said, on top of this, or the way the Greek reads, what's worse than all of this, is I face the daily pressure of my concern for you not-headed believers who won't do the right thing. The worst pressure he faced, the worst pressure he faced and, and difficult situation he faced was that he cared for people that weren't acting right. Any of you have kids? You know exactly what I'm talking about. Paul was a tough guy, right? If you had this in your resume, you wouldn't look at that guy and say such a wimp, right? How was the gospel able to survive? Because not just Paul, but Christianity in general embraced this view of our lives with this toughness that says we will out-survive no matter what you do to us because if you kill us, we have heaven as our reward and if we suffer, God is going to give us a greater reward and if we're in a place of blessing, it is only so we can use it to build our heaven reward. So the early church was successful because they were sold out to Christ. You can't kill someone who's already died. You can't kill a dead man. You can't threaten a dead man. And Paul, 
in one of those places when he was in jail, wrote these words. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. So I am dead. I am dead. When I gave my life to Jesus Christ, I was literally nailed to the cross with him. And I died. Listen, I was already dead in my trespasses and sins. I had no hope. I had no hope. I was dead. I was a dead man walking. I had no hope, no life, no nothing. And when I accepted Jesus as my Lord, he took me and nailed me to the cross with him. And he said, nevertheless, I live. But I live because Christ lives in me and the life I live in the body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what he's saying is the life I live is a life I can't lose at because the, the guy whose life I'm living in, he already conquered death. He's already overcome everything we fear. He is the Lord, the master, the king, the victor, the overcoming, victorious, awesome one. I have nothing to fear now. And a lot of us, we run around afraid, putting car seats and bike helmets on everybody and bubble wrapping our kids, afraid for them to ever suffer anything. But what God wants you to know is if your life is hid with Christ, you've already been crucified, you're already dead, and you're already a victor because it's not you that does it, it is Christ's life in you that gives you the victory. That is the wonderful truth. So we live our shallow lives pursuing pleasure and passion and the poisons that we put in us. And we're pursuing these things thinking they're gonna make us happy. And all the while God says, would you just die with Christ? Would you let me raise you up to new life? And that's what baptism is. And that's why we're gonna do it tonight. In the chapel, we're gonna do a baptism tonight, the refresh service. And, and uh, we're gonna do a baptism because this is what we do. If you're dead with Christ, we're gonna hold your funeral. We're gonna put you under the water and you're gonna die, we're, you're dead. You accepted Christ, so we're gonna bury you at your funeral. But you know what, you don't stay dead, you get resurrected like Jesus. And we're gonna pull you up and all the sin's gone and all your past is gone and you get a new life in Christ. And if you wanna step into that, Pastor Matt's gonna be right up here after service and if you wanna be baptized, man, it's time to take the plunge. By the way, people doing this, they've been doing it for centuries. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start now. In the remainder of this message, I'm going to give you history lessons, okay? This is going to be the only Christian document I quote. And this is the Didache. It is a Christian document from about 120 AD. And this is what the Didache says. The Didache says that you should baptize people into cold water. But if you can't find cold water, you know, go ahead and baptize them. But order the baptized to fast a day or two. And, and that's really what they were saying. They were saying, baptize them into cold water and make them fast. We want you to go through a baptism class, make sure your commitment's real, and then we're gonna baptize you into cold water. We found some place to do it. I found some, some Russian believers that, that really believe that they should be baptized. And, uh, and I wanna show you their video, so. Oh! Now that's the meaning of cold water, right? Come on. There's some of you who've never, you've never followed Jesus in baptism because you're embarrassed. Die. Let's do it. Let's do it. Pastor Matt will be up there. We also need to develop some toughness too. I'm gonna read you some quotes. All of these are quotes from non-Christian authors from the first and second century. Non-Christian authors. The reason I'm reading these quotes is to let you know how the world who was persecuting Christians believed Christians acted and thought. Okay, you ready? Pliny the Younger, who uh, was the governor of Pontius and Bithynia in 1111 11 to 1113, was persecuting Christians. And he said, those stupid ones who persisted in, in their faith 
I executed them. And then he said this, accordingly, I judged it more necessary to find out what these people believed. So I tortured two female slaves who were called deaconesses. They wouldn't recant and they were tortured and killed. Young ladies. Tacticus, Roman historian, AD 116. He said, therefore, to stop the rumor that Nero had set Rome on fire, he falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures, persons commonly called Christians, who were hated for their enormities, and their enormities were being just and loving and, and treating people right. And then to make sure you knew who you were talking about, he said, Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, the procurator of Judea during the reign of Tiberius. So we know we're talking about Christians. And he said of, of them, in their very deaths, they were made subjects of sport. For they were, these Christians were covered with the hides of wild beasts. And then they, were, they would release dogs on them to go and to, uh, to chase them down and kill them. Or they were nailed to crosses. Or they were set fire to. And when the day waned, burned to serve for the evening lights because Nero would light his gardens with burning Christian bodies that he had covered with pitch. Alive mothers and fathers and children hanging on a pole covered with pitch, burning until they died because of their faith in Christ. So what did they do? Catacombs. The Christians then, they didn't worship out in the open. They went into catacombs. So what did they do? They went underground. What are catacombs? Well, Romans were superstitious. They didn't like being around dead bodies, so they buried them. They dug holes in the ground. They would send slaves down there to bury them. In these, you can see those are shelves where dead bodies would be laid. And the catacombs became the place where Christians began to worship. So they would go down, and this was their church. And while they were here in their church, you see, that's where they, can you imagine being underground in the summer in Rome with these bodies that are dead and decaying with the disease that's there, the smell with no ventilation, the dark, dank, smelly, rotting bodies with disease all around, and this was where Christians had church. But as with everything Christians do, they didn't just go in and worship. They made it better because look what they did. The, these are some of the catacombs they found. And notice what they did. They, made the, they said, if we're going to worship here, we're at least going to do it right. <laughs> Can you imagine church? Don't tell me. Don't tell me you can't come to church. <laughs> Lucian of Samosota. He was a Greek satirist who was making fun of Christians. And this is what he said. He said, you see, these misguided creatures, these misguided Christians, start with a general conviction that they are immortal for all time. We've talked about that, right? Because Jesus is immortal, we get to live forever. So these misguided believers think they're immortal for all time. That's what the people who were killing them said about them. <laughs> which explains the contempt of death and the voluntary self-sacrifice which are so common among them. One more story. This is the story that actually propelled this sermon series. I was listening to a podcast and a guy told a story about how Christians were martyred in the, uh, in the Colosseum. Um, they would take wild animals and they would release the wild animals on the Christian families, the entire family in the Colosseum at the same time. There would be multiple families. They would pull the Christian families into the Colosseum. They'd put them out there and then they would release wild animals on them to kill them. The men in the church would get in the center and they would put their wives around them and then they would put the children on the extremities. So the men would be at the center and the women around them and the children on the outside. When I heard that, I was a little taken aback until I heard the explanation. You see, the wild animals that came out hadn't been fed for a while and they were hungry so when they encountered the first thing they encountered, they would kill it quickly. But as they ate their prey, they would begin playing with their food instead of killing it. So the men stood in that circle 
and watched their children killed and eaten, knowing that if they moved to save them, they would actually prolong their agony. Watched their wives, their sisters die, knowing that they were going to be played with for hours at the sport of the people in the stands jeering at them. And you want to tell me that you have rough things happen to you. You want to tell me that you can't make it? It's time for us to develop some toughness. The toughness that enables us to say, you may destroy this body, but my life is hidden with God in Christ. And I will not be shaken, I will not be moved, because everything you do to me, you did worse to my Jesus. And he got up out of the grave and he won. And because he won, I know no matter what comes my way, I will win because I have been crucified with Christ, but my life is hidden with God in Christ Jesus. I am more than a conqueror because whatever you do to me, if you kill me, I get heaven. If you persecute me, I get eternal reward. If you listen to me, I get eternal reward. It doesn't matter. My life is not my own. And if we're going to survive this next generation, listen to me, young person, listen to me especially. Young person in this room, you listen to me very, very clearly. You're going to have to embrace a faith that says, it doesn't matter what it costs me. I will be loyal to Christ Jesus and I will not quit. I will follow, I will listen, and I will serve him and him alone. So I'm gonna ask everyone if you would to bow your heads with me. I'm gonna do this a little different today, but I wanna ask you, if you have not made that commitment to follow Jesus as your Lord, you've never made him Lord, you haven't done that, today is your day, today is your day. Today is the day that you say, Jesus, I give you my life. I quit trying to be right in me and I will be your servant no matter what it costs me. If that's you, I don't care whether you're young or old, today you're listening to me and today is your day to be saved. Today is your day to give him all your life right now. I want you to stand up right where you are as an act of faith, stand. Don't raise your hand, stand. Say, I will follow Jesus with all my heart. Yes, yes, are there others? Come on, yes, are there others? It is your day, yes, are there others? Come on, it is your day. All in, all in, I'm all in. Everybody stand with me. Nobody prays alone in this moment. Nobody at Harvest Ridge prays alone. We do this together. Right now, if you're online, text BELIEVE to that number on the screen and then pray this prayer with us and we will believe that God is going to take you at your word. Can we pray this together? Dear Jesus, I give you my life. Please give me yours. I believe you died for my sins. And I believe you were resurrected from the dead. I now give you my life. Thank you for giving me yours. Be my Lord. Amen. Now you prayed that, you meant that. Guess what happened? You were made new in Jesus Christ right now. You're completely new. So here's how we're gonna end today, all right? I thought about ending 15 different ways, but I thought about Paul in a prison jail in Philippians after just having the crud beat out of him. They were singing songs of praise and joy to God when a miracle happened and the, the bars began to shake and the earth began to shake and God did a miracle and brought salvation that day because he worshiped with joy. And if you read the book of Philippians, joy is the word he uses over and over and over again because he learned something in that prison that when you worship in joy in the middle of the crisis God can move with power and with victory so there are some of you you need to do this you need to sing this you need to throw your hands in the air and you need to celebrate with worship as you sing this old old hymn of the church together with us here we go